Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Woody's already read uh, some for us here this morning. And so um, we're going to just read right now verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21 of 2 Samuel chapter 5. As you're opening up there, uh, let me just say how grateful I am for all the hard work and effort that you put into Reach Week and Church Outside the Walls this year. We had a lot of first-time guests and were able to follow up a lot of them this week. And uh, we just got to see a lot of fruit born for the Lord Jesus during Reach Week and at Church Outside the Walls. So thank you for your commitment to that and the work you put into making that such great success. If you have your Bibles open there to 2 Samuel chapter 5, would you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Let's pray together. O oh God, would you please open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. And God, I pray we would be changed by the power of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Almost nothing throws me off, quite like when I hear somebody else's phone ring, but it's the ringtone I use for my alarm in the morning. You guys ever had this experience before? Man, it just sends cold shivers down my spine. I feel like I'm late for something or have missed something. That, that's really what alarms are meant to do, isn't it? That's what an alarm is meant to do. It's meant to jolt you. It's meant to rattle you. It's meant to let you know something. Uh, just this weekend, we had a false burglary alarm go off here at the church. And when an alarm goes off, a string of events uh, begins to happen. First of all, you can probably imagine what the first thing is. A loud alarm sound begins to go off. And I don't know if you've ever been in a building when a burglary, burglary alarm or a fire alarm goes off. But I have, and I'm going to tell you something. It is loud and jarring, and it gets your attention. I know some of y'all have been in the room, at least when the alarm here at the church has gone off, because I know some of you have set the alarm off, and I've had to come bail you out of uh, a situation with the police here at the church. So I, I know that's the case. A loud sound goes off. It's disorienting. And, and then the dispatch center at the alarm company calls me. And if they can't get me on the phone, they call Woody. If they can't get Woody on the phone, it goes down to different people on the staff. They call me, and they ask if they need to dispatch the police. Well, over the weekend, it happened to be 3 a.m. when my phone rang. And so my assumption at that point was that even though y'all are very dedicated, my assumption was that some folks from a Bible study had not set the alarm off in the Family Life Center at 3 a.m., 
And so uh, I assumed it wasn't an accident. And so I said, yeah, we better go ahead and send the police just, just to be safe. Um, and so I, I pull up, and when you pull up, you see cop cars outside the church. It's just not something you want to see, right? It's just sort of alarming and disorienting to pull up and to see lots of police vehicles outside the church. And what does a cop car look like, a police vehicle look like? It looks like it has flashing lights there to alert everyone around them to who they are, to make sure people get out of their way. There is nothing subtle. There is nothing subtle about an alarm going off. It is disruptive. It is loud. There are lots of things that are in your face to make sure you know something is going on. And today, as we dig into 2 Samuel chapter 5, I think we're going to notice that the author is setting off some alarms. There are some lights flashing. There are some sirens blaring in the text to clue us into something he wants us to know, to some, some things that he wants us to know. The author is trying to tell us something about who David is and what God is doing in the, de- in the life and kingship of David. There's some alarms here that we would do well to pay attention to. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 2. You may not know this about the psalms. If you ever spend much time in the psalms, you probably know that David wrote a great majority of the psalms. But what you might not know about the psalms is that Psalms 1 and 2 are sort of meant to be read together. And they're also meant to be sort of an introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole, people call the Psalms the Psalter. So the, the Psalter is introduced by Psalms 1 and 2. You might be more familiar with Psalm 1 that talks about the righteous that are like trees planted by streams of water. But Psalm 2 is equally as important in introducing us to the theme of all of the Psalms. And notice what Psalm 2 tells us, beginning verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are raging against God and against his king, his anointed one, his Messiah. How does God respond? The psalmist tells us, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Do you see the way the rest of the Bible talks about David's kingship? The the way the rest of the Bible talks about the king in Jerusalem? Do you see the way later we'll read, you can read through the Psalms and see the way David understood his own kingship? We'll look a little bit earlier in the Old Testament to see the way prophecies are being fulfilled in David's life. But if you start to read the whole Bible and let it inform the way you read 2 Samuel, you begin to see that there are alarms going off in this text that tell you, this is my anointed one. This is my Messiah. This is my King. This is the one that I am setting on Zion, my holy hill. As you read a text like Psalm 2, you can see the way and maybe even hear the way that the messianic alarms are blaring in 2 Samuel 5. There are clues telling us about how God sees David and how the author understands David's kingship. 
You see, the author here is making it plain to us that God is at work to fulfill his promises through his anointed one. That's what the word Messiah, I've said it a couple of times, the word Messiah that you've heard applied rightfully to our Lord Jesus Christ means anointed one, the one God has set apart. And so in texts like these, we can see the way that David is the little M Messiah of God, the anointed one of God. And so the author is trying to show us the way that God is fulfilling his promises through David's life. Uh, This morning, I want to show you three points about how God works and what God does through His anointed one, through His Messiah. I want to show you what God does when He sets His King in Zion, when He puts His King on His holy hill. I want to show you what God is up to through the work of His anointed one. Here's the first point I want you to see. Here's the first point. It's this. God brings unity through His anointed. God brings unity through his Messiah. We've talked about this a little bit as we've dug a little deeper into this story. Most of us have a little bit of an oversimplified understanding, at least I do. Uh, Typically, the way I store these stories in my brain, I think Saul dies, David becomes king, and the kingdom is immediately united under David. And yet, we have this little Ishbosheth episode between these two things where there is a king in Israel before David becomes king over the United Kingdom. And so here you can see the way now under David, the kingdom of Israel is truly united again under his reign. Some of the work that Abner had begun doing now comes to full fruition in the life of David. In fact, let's just focus for just a moment on verse 2 of chapter 5. These tribes come to David, and they say, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And then in verse 2, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Do you see the way that all the tribes of Israel, David was from Judah, and David was already the reigning king over Judah. Immediately he becomes king in Judah, and yet the kingdom is divided temporarily, and now all of these brothers of David come to him, and they say, you are our flesh and bone, and they then pledge themselves to him and submit themselves to his kingship. That's a a bold thing to do. It's not an easy thing to unite warring peoples. You have to remember this is on the, on the heels of a civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul. Two separate tribes, two separate sets of kin, and yet hey, they are now coming to David to submit themselves to unite the kingdom under his reign and rule. I want you to notice something about what Jacob, the forefather, back in Genesis chapter 49, Hundreds of years before this, notice what Jacob prophesies over Judah. Uh, that's David is descended from Judah. He's already king in Judah. But notice what his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather has prophesied over him uh, by Jacob. Notice what he says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Do you see this? Do you see the way that Jacob was prophesying and predicting back in Genesis? The way that one from Judah would have preeminence over his brothers? And the way his 
father's sons would bow down before him. And here, this prophecy is coming true in the life of David. Do you hear it? Do you hear the alarms going off? Do you hear the sirens blaring here? God's anointed one brings unity to his people. God's anointed one brings unity to his people. They come to the king at Hebron. And King David makes a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord. And then they anointed King David over all of Israel. And then we get a description of the length of David's reign there in verse 5. Brothers and sisters, God's anointed one brings unity to his people. And this is one reason why unity is so important in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one reason why unity in the Lord's church is so important. It is a hallmark of what it means. Unity is a hallmark of what it means for Jesus to be king. Uh, Think about this for a moment. The the reign and rule of the Messiah is constituted. It is represented by unity. It brings unity about. Let me put it like this. One of the most important things for us to give to the world is our unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to stop for a moment and understand what I mean by unity. I do not mean uniformity, okay? I think this is one place where Christians sometimes get confused. They think when we talk about unity, what we mean is mere uniformity, that we all ought to be identical. First of all, wouldn't that be sort of boring? I'm glad God designed it a little differently than that. But second of all, if what we only desire is uniformity, there's really no difference in that kind of unity and the kind of unity that's in the world. It's not hard to get a bunch of people who agree with one another, who look like one another, who act like one another, and who have common interests to be unified together. Uh, Typically, that's pretty easy to come by. Now, what's difficult, though, is if you get a group of people together and they don't have the same interests necessarily, And they don't have the same beliefs necessarily in terms of the way they see the world. And they don't have uh, the same color skin. And they don't have the same background. And they don't have these different things. That's the sort of unity that really starts to turn people's heads. You begin to sort of start to wonder, like, how in the world are those people getting along? Several years ago, um, our elevator back here broke on a Sunday morning. It broke down. And there were two precious ladies, both of whom are now with the Lord, who were on the elevator together. And uh, I'm standing there looking at a broken down elevator thinking, what in the world do we do to fix this thing? It's stuck between floors. I think somebody had pried the doors open so we could talk to them. Larry Furman's standing on a stool outside trying to keep everybody calm, passing through snacks and water and this kind of thing. One of our deacons came up to me and he looked at the uh, elevator and he said, what's going on? I said, well, sister so-and-so and and sister so-and-so are stuck on the elevator. And he said, that's like putting a couple of yellow jackets in a jar and shaking it up, isn't it? (laughs) And then he walked off. (laughs) Well, okay, here I am. We'll see what we'll do now. Now, think about this for just a moment. The Lord's Church, at times, people look at it and say, how in the world do we put all those people in a building and get them to get along? There's only one way. There's only one way that's of import to us. There's only one way that matters. That is, we are united around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's like putting a bunch of yellow jackets in a jar, shaking it up. 
The, the, the reality is what we have here is unity united around the rule and reign of the anointed Son of God. And there is nothing more important than having that unity and that rule and reign reflected in the church that bears His name. I think it's one of the most important gifts we can give to a divided world. Don't you think? Nobody can get along anymore. Everybody seems to be at each other's throat. And perhaps it's, it's not just that we are okay with having a diversity of thought and diversity in our churches, but it's that we desire it because we want to show the world that it's the gospel that unites us. God, God brings unity through His anointed. But second of all, God brings stability through His anointed one. God brings stability through His anointed one. At this point, for several years... David reigned from Hebron in the land of Judah. But at this point, David chooses to occupy Jerusalem by defeating the Jebusites. The Jebusites were one group of people that weren't quite defeated in the conquest of the promised land. And then Jerusalem is the city of Salem, where Melchizedek was from. And so this is a, 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 an essential place. And so as David goes to occupy Jerusalem... You might notice that these Jebusites begin to taunt him because they are foolishly cocky about the strength of their fortification. Now, this is what they mean when they say uh, this little bit about the, 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 the lame and the blind. In other words, anybody. You, you don't even have to be able to walk. You don't have to be able to see to defend this fortification. Anybody can defend us against David because of how strong our defenses are. But David seems to know about a weakness in the Jebusite fortress. I mean, again, this is riddled with language. We're piecing it, language that can be confusing to us. We're trying to piece it together the best we can. But, but notice what it said here in verse 8. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. In other words, he's, David's not saying, let's go in and find the weakest people in Jerusalem. He's stealing their own pun and saying, guess what? They think this place is so fortified. What they don't know that we know about is this water shaft. And archaeological evidence later has kind of backed up the fact that it seems like a weak place in old Jerusalem was this water shaft through which people could now, we don't know exactly what the strategy was, but at some level, it seems like David and his men used this water chef. They, they exposed this weakness in the fortification, and David takes over, reversing their taunt. David takes Jerusalem as his new capital and a strategic location for ruling over the United Kingdom. Some of you might be reminded in this of the logic that was used in establishing Washington, D.C. as the capital of the United States. It was a place that was neutral. It didn't belong to any one state. And in the same way, this was an unconquered place situated right on the border of northern and southern Israel, of the Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And so David, instead of remaining in his homeland of Judah and staying there in Hebron, establishes a new capital to show and demonstrate the unity of the new united kingdom. Now, after this, immediately, there are two notes that the author strikes. The first is that a king named Hiram of Tyre sends messengers and tributes to David in order to help him build 
his house. Now, one thing we need to note about 2 Samuel chapter 5 is we recognize these are all aspects of things that actually happened in the kingship of David, but we don't know for sure that they happened in exactly the order they're presented here. The author is trying to tell us something about the nature of David's reign, and his dedication is not necessarily to showing it in perfect historical order, but instead to tell us about these true events that happened and present them in a way to teach us something here. So this may be about some of the later construction projects that happened. We're not exactly sure, but but the bottom line is that the author is trying to help us see something about what Hiram of Tyre is doing in sending supplies and workers to help build David's house. Maybe he's trying to help us be reminded of something else Jacob said to Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Do you see the way this prophecy is being fulfilled in the life of David? The way tribute is coming from him, from the peoples, from the nations, from people that aren't Israel? Do you see the way that they are... Uh, dedicating themselves to him and to Israel apart from war. Psalm 2 talks about it as well in verses 7 through 9. I will tell the decree the psalmist tells us. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Again, the alarms are going off. The author wants us to see David is the Messiah of God. He is anointed by God. And so we see this first note of Hiram of Tyre and then a second note about David's kingship in the further verses there in chapter 5, verses 13 down into 16. And it's a mixed note. Obviously, we get a demonstration of all the offspring of David showing us how stable his reign is. But it also gives us a picture of the fact that David wrongly and sinfully and against God's will took many wives and concubines. All this being said, what's this chapter giving us a picture of? It's giving us a picture of the stability of the reign of God's anointed. This new capital that's meant to unite the two halves of the kingdom together. The the nations around them blessing him and and bringing them and helping establish his house. There's a little bit of a play on words that they're building the house of David. And the idea of the house of David is also being built out biblically by his offspring. It's the line and lineage. The dominion of David is being, or the dynasty of David is also called his house. And so here we see this picture of the stability of the reign and rule of the anointed of God. And I ask you this question today. Where do we seek our stability? Where do we seek stability in our lives? In the world? In the fleeting things of this life? Or do we seek our stability in Christ Himself, the Anointed One of God? Uh, Do you find yourself clinging to the stability of your health? Our health is fleeting, isn't it? All of us learn this every day. Every day we're reminded of the fact From dust we came, and to dust we will return. How fleeting our health is, how weak our bodies are, how untrustworthy the stability of our health is. Do you find yourself clinging to the stability of your wealth? Haven't you ever said to yourself, if I could just reach this financial milestone, I don't think I would ever have to worry about financial stability anymore. And then what happens? You reach that financial milestone... 
And I bet you're still more concerned about the stability of your finances than you thought you would be at that stage. It's happened to me more, more than once. If we could just get there, I think we'd be just fine. We didn't ever have to worry about this again. And then, guess what? You still worry about it. I've had conversations with people that are very wealthy. And they say they sometimes worry more about money when they're wealthy than they did when they didn't have anything. Consider for a moment that your wealth maybe is not as stable as you think it is. The stability of your career. Are you seeking stability in your career, in your reputation, in your family, in your status in this world? Oh, friends, the only place to find true stability is in the Lord's anointed, in the stability of Christ. He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look for stability there. The the Lord's anointed brings unity. The Lord's anointed brings stability. And finally, God brings security through His anointed. Security through His anointed. Well, things couldn't be going better, could they? For David and his reign, the kingdom is united. The capital of Jerusalem is secured. Prophecies are being fulfilled. All the alarms are going off in the right direction. But the Philistines are still at the gates. In fact, upon hearing of David's full ascension to the throne, the Philistines come and try to defeat him two times. And both times, David, rather than riding on his laurels and saying, of course I should just fight them at will, instead he shrewdly goes to the stronghold. He waits, he bides his time, he seeks the will of the Lord, and both times God grants him overwhelming victory over the Philistines. Do you see the way that these alarms continue to sound? Psalm 2 tells us in verses 10 through 12, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay tribute to the anointed one, in other words. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's anointed brings security to his people. He protects them from the threats that are around them. God uses his anointed one to fight the battles of his people. And here we see David being valiant in battle and winning great victories. And we see this whole picture, this beautiful picture, this this beautiful uh, pastiche painted before us of all these beautiful aspects of what it means for David to rule and reign as the anointed one with God. And here we see this picture of the security of the people of God. Because of the reign of the anointed one. My friends, where do you find your security? Where do you find your security? It's easy to live fearfully in this world, isn't it? Just to be afraid all the time, to be worried. Perhaps some of us are living with false security. We just think nothing bad could ever happen to me. But where do you find your security? What, why would we not live fearfully? Or why would we live uh, with alertness but recognizing we shouldn't put too much hope in ourselves or our own abilities or even all the things that seem secure around us? Is because the only true security can be found in Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, you are secure forever. These may go south in this life, but they won't go south forever if you know Christ. And we also recognize that nothing in this world can give us true security. Only Jesus can do that as well. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where is my hope? Where's my hope? I don't think there's anyone in this whole building right now who doesn't long for unity. 
who doesn't long for stability, who doesn't long for security. I want you to consider for a moment how David's greater son, fulfills all these desires in a truer and better way. We can look back and see, and we'll see as we continue in this story the way that David fails. He doesn't do these things perfectly over and over again. There are problems that spur up, but that's by design because ultimately David is meant to point us to the true Messiah, the capital M Messiah, the capital K King, the true anointed of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see today and consider how he fulfills our deepest desires. He gives true, authentic unity through the church. He gives genuine stability, not just based on the borders of a country or on the peace of a country, but forever and ever. He gives us security, knowing that there's nothing that can touch us so long as we are in His hands. Look, my friends, to the cross if you desire these things. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, to look for these things in Jesus. And after you have suffered for a little while, recognizing that we won't get all these things in this life. He says, The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see the way Jesus fulfills all of our deepest longings? Do you see the way that Jesus is the true and better Messiah? Would you today turn from your sins and put your trust in Him. I hope that you will. I want to offer an invitation this morning. First of all, to all of you who have never put your trust in Christ for the first time, I offer this invitation to you today. Would you turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus? I believe you will be saved. Second of all, you may be a believer, and you may say, Pastor, I, I need to reorient my trust in any of these categories or in some other category I haven't even mentioned. I need to reorient my trust away from myself, away from the world, and toward Jesus today. This altar's open to you, but I'd love to talk to you if you need someone to talk to. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. You can come talk to me right here. You can do business where you are. You can catch me after the service, but I want you to respond to Jesus in the way that He's calling you today. After this prayer, I want to invite you to do so. Let's pray together.